E-A-B-L-E-S. Ebels. Remember that name because if you suffer from chronic joint and muscle pain like me, then Ebels Broad Spectrum CBD Oil is your answer to your prayers. The Ebels story began with the search for something natural to help manage chronic migraines. But Ebels helps more than just migraines. From managing chronic pain, anxiety, depression, and more, Ebels is truly a game changer in the natural alternatives to big pharma drugs. And yours truly, Brian Nichols here on The Brian Nichols Show, can indeed vouch for the quality of Ebels. Having a herniated disc in my back, whew, coupled with years of sports injuries, I was struggling to find something, anything to help manage my pain. That is until Ebels. With the best quality product and customer service in the industry, Ebels Broad Spectrum CBD Oil and Ebels Freeze Gel easily stand above all the competition. And right now, Ebels is offering a special discount to all members of the Brian Nichols Show audience on all orders. All you have to do is head to Ebels.com and use promo code TB. NS, the Brian Nichols Show, right? TBNS at checkout. That's it. Discount applied. Again, the code is TBNS at checkout to start managing your pain today with the highest quality CBD on the market. One more time, that is code TBNS at checkout. And now, on to the show. Can I pause for a second and just note that uh, we got Brian on here who's getting uh, Congressman Massey on, and our typical lineup includes like homeless people that believe in Bigfoot. <laughs> Welcome to the Brian Nichols Show, your source for common sense politics on the We Are Libertarians Network. The Brian Nichols Show is the fastest growing liberty podcast that brings together people from all means of political thought as we seek to have meaningful conversations about the issues you care about. At the Brian Nichols Show, our goal is to leave the audience educated, enlightened, and informed. And now your host, Brian Nichols. Happy Friday, folks. Brian Nichols here on The Brian Nichols Show. Yes, happy Friday. It's, what's up? I'm a Brian Nichols, your humble host. You know who I am. Well, I hope you know who I am. If you're a first-time listener, well, then welcome to The Brian Nichols Show. You're in store for, yes, a phenomenal episode here on The Brian Nichols Show, part of the We Are Libertarians Network, and I am your humble host, Brian Nichols. Today, we are joined for our flagship show by Associate Professor Kevin Vallier discussing his brand new book, Yes, trust in a polarized age right now in 2020 as we head to 2021. My goodness, polarization is to the extremes and uh, Kevin joins the show to really dig into why, why we need to show some trust and exactly how to do that. So without further ado, on to the show, Kevin Vallier here on The Brian Nichols Show. Uh, very, very glad to be on. Very glad to have you. Kevin, you yep. wrote a book, Trust in a Polarized Age, which... I think it's fair to say this is, a, in fact, a very polarized age. Um, and, and right now, there's a lot of Americans who I think are, are scrambling for answers. And I think those answers first come with, how can I trust my fellow neighbor? How can I trust the Republican or the Democrat on the opposite side of the kitchen table during Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner? So with that, right now, your book, I think, is coming at a perfect time with all the, the emotions and the strife we're seeing coming up here with the election. And candidly, we're recording here on October 27th, so we haven't seen the fallout of, of what happened. Um, but this air is airing here um, after your book is released on November 10th. And we, we obviously are, are facing a very trying time right now. So your book, again, comes at a perfect time. So let's start off here. I love to kind of introduce my my audience uh, to my guests by my, my guests being able to kind of tell their story 
And I know in your your intro uh, email to me, you mentioned that you were one of the, the bleeding heart libertarians out there. And actually, I had uh, Professor Steve Horitz on the show. Um, oh, very good. Yeah. Yes. And yeah, Steve we actually. Were bloggers. He, yes. So he hails from my neck of the woods up in northern New York when he was uh, teaching uh-huh. at St. Louis University. Um, so mm-hmm. it was it was great to, to meet another uh, bleeding heart libertarian like uh, Professor yeah. Horwitz. Yeah. So let's kind of start off. What was kind of your path to libertarianism through this like bleeding heart mentality, but also kind of what got oh, you? Oh, dear. Fil- I know. I know. Trust me. It, it, these are always the fun conversations. But also, how did that help progress to where you are as a, an academic at Bowling Green University? Um, so um, I started getting interested in politics when I was 15 or 16, um, starting geez, around, um, you know, the late nineties with the impeachment thing. A lot of people had opinions on that in South Alabama where I was and, um, and the school, they imposed a school uniform policy, uh, post Columbine in my public school. And I started thinking about Liberty then like, you know, well, there were these guys that, that killed these kids, but why does that mean that, um, we all have to wear khaki and white now. Um, was it actually going to do any good? Was there any evidence that it would do any good? Or are they just bossing us around uh, in order to sort of make others feel safe, but not based on any, any evidence? And, you know, that was a kind of minor issue, relatively speaking. But that kernel of skepticism, right, that people are just imposing controls out of fear or desire to control other people, that there was no fundamental rationale behind any of it. Um, That kind of stuck with me. I was a pretty uh, serious Democrat. I worked on the Gore campaign. I was 17, so I couldn't actually vote for him. Um, um, But I was reading Murray Rothbard's For New Liberty that fall. And because a friend of mine in the Conservative Leadership Association, which was a conservative libertarian alliance at Washington University in St. Louis, had given me the book. And it was just radicalizing me bit by bit. And I remember I was for Gore at the end because I hadn't read Rothbard's final chapter on environmentalism. And then I read it and I was like, okay, I was completely mistaken. <laughs> um, so, so then I uh, and a, uh, some friends of mine started the Wash U Colors Libertarians. And um, we became so numerous that we were all members of the conservative libertarian kind of group. And we were the only group like in the country, conservative libertarian group in the country that opposed the Iraq war. Hmm. So um, someone who was an MA student at WashU when I was an undergrad was uh, Dan McCarthy, who helped to found uh, the American Conservative. Um, And, um, you know, we were all kind of thinking in terms of like there were some paleo conservatives, some libertarians. um, And, you know, everything had kind of fallen into place with libertarian political thought for me. Um, and so I thought when I went to graduate school, you know, uh, in philosophy, because I'd, I'd majored in, in philosophy and in cognitive science at WashU, and I was interested either in going into philosophy of mind, so asking questions about the nature of consciousness, for instance, in particular, um, and intentionality, but I was also very interested in political philosophy. So I thought, well, okay, so what are like the best PhD programs that I can go to where I can learn, you know, continue to think through libertarian questions, but that also be good in philosophy of mind. Well, um, the main place that came up was the University of Arizona. And um, I was uh, hoping when I went there to work with Dave Schmitz or David Chalmers, who's one of the leading philosophers of mind, but uh, Chalmers had just left when I got there. So I was lucky enough to get in. um, And about a year after I got there, uh, Jerry Gauss, um, uh, who later became my dissertation advisor, joined the University of Arizona. And Jerry's uh, a classical liberal, but you wouldn't call him a libertarian. 
and, but I think he's actually the greatest classical liberal thinker of the 21st century. He wrote this book 10 years ago called The Order of Public Reason, which I think is the best defense of classical liberalism just about ever. I'm starting to teach it at my grad seminar tomorrow. But um, one of Jerry's um, hostilities, one of his issues was that with ideology. And he had this almost shared virtue with Socrates of whenever someone sounded certain of something, he'd just go in for the kill. And he was absolutely brilliant. In fact, he, he Chalmers, and Roderick Long are the three smartest people I've ever met. Um, and he, because um, a lot of your listeners will know who Roderick Long is. Mm -hmm. um, um, so, and Roderick was, is a good friend and, and wonderful. Um, so what Jerry started to do was, you know, he challenged all of his students, uh, to rethink their ideology and he really challenged me to rethink it. And part of the issue, um, was not so much that libertarian conception of justice was false, but uh, he asked a new question and one that I'd never learned in libertarianism before, which was, well, assume that we're not going to convince most people that libertarianism is true. How do we live with people who aren't libertarians? What principles can we use to adjudicate our disputes? And Jerry had, along with uh, Rawls in his later work, um, been working up this idea that was actually common in the social contract tradition, what's called public reason. And public reason liberalism endorses lots of sort of liberal rights, but what's distinctive about it is that it seeks to justify state coercion to a range of different perspectives. So the thought was, okay, well, what laws and policies can be justified not just to libertarians, but to conservatives and progressives? And you might think, well, not very much. And um, I think it's true, uh, not a huge amount. There's a, a large amount of things that states do that can't be mutually justified to all. But what it came to mean for me, which is that there was a way of being a libertarian that was authoritarian, which seems like it's a paradox, right? But it actually isn't. For instance, I'll give you an example of good old Walter Block. I listened to him give a lecture after I was starting to think about these issues. And he said, well, what should we do with, in a libertarian society with people like Rosie O'Donnell who want to ban gun control or want to ban guns? And he said, well, they would be regarded as common criminals. Right. And I thought if we started to treat all non-libertarians like that, right. libertarianism would suck. Right. Um, there's a way in which we would have contradicted ourselves. And so my introduction to public reason was my attempt to think, OK, there's an authoritarian way of being a libertarian. But there's also this kind of better way where we take the perspectives of others seriously. Jerry actually had such a big impact on my thinking that he made me a lot less certain that the libertarian theory of justice was true. But in a book he wrote in 2016, The Tyranny of the Ideal, um, he actually argued in contrast to the title that open societies can benefit from people having strong commitments to justice. And so I started thinking, okay, well, it's good for me not to be authoritarian about my libertarianism, but it's also good in many ways to have a view about justice. And I still think libertarianism is that view. Um, and it was that combination, that tension that led me to Bleeding Heart Libertarians. So the idea was that elements of the welfare state, I think, can be justified to conservatives and progressives. And I think if libertarians say no redistribution at all, we're essentially saying we can't live on free and equal terms with non-libertarians because everybody else 
thinks that at least some redistribution can be justified. I mean, there's a few cases in libertarianism where it's allowed. And so I, so the question I ask to libertarians is how much of your conception of justice are you willing to give up to be able to live in cooperative relations with non-libertarians, right? How much are, you know, and I thought, okay, we can't, we can't compromise on war, right? That's just, it's just out. We're, we're basically pacifists with respect to war. Um, because modern states can't discriminate it against not to kill the innocent. So I thought, okay, there's some places where we have to draw the line, right? But there's other places where like, you know, food stamps for moms who can't get milk for their kids, you know, um, that's the kind of thing I think, okay, you know, I can give on that. And so I thought, okay, you know, there's some redistributive measures that can be justified even to libertarians on the grounds that while it's not ideal, while it is unjust to some degree, if we want to live with other perspectives, that's what we have to do. Mm -hmm. So um, that's how I passed through Bleeding Heart Libertarians. And um, a lot of my thinking from there on out was thinking, is, is it even coherent to ask the question of what it would mean to be trans-ideological? Like to have a political order that treated ideology like we treat religion. Could there be any principle of ideological toleration? And I started to think about this question in light of political polarization, right? That we treat our political differences like we used to treat religious differences, right? And that many people, especially on the right, have replaced religious fundamentalism, which I don't really like that term, but the, I, I like what I'm about to say. We replace, <laughs> we replace religious fundamentalism with political fundamentalism. Yep. And libertarians can get sucked into that too, though we're so used to being on the outside, we're usually a little bit better. Um, so, so my thinking was, well, how do we reduce polarization without asking people to change their views? How would that even work? Well, we have to pursue policies that build trust between different perspectives. And so that's why I wrote trust in a polarized age is I was trying to think which institutions would do the best job at sustaining high levels of trust between ideological perspectives, both among people, uh, and the public at large, but also among people in government. Um, and um, this led to a kind of take on libertarianism that I think maybe some libertarians need to hear, which is that a generic blanket attitude of distrust in government can actually leave us with worse and more powerful government. To get an example, if we sow distrust in the Fed, what's the likelihood in the next recession? Is it more likely that we'll go to a gold standard or is it more likely that we'll get ridiculous fiscal policy? Well, it's probably more likely, given what most people think, that we'll end up with ridiculous fiscal policy. So even though I do think it's reasonable to think the Fed at least makes many recessions worse, um, um, by, by talking about ending the Fed, what was the real alternative? Well, 1% of people would go for a gold standard, but everyone else is just going to go Keynesian, right? So like having the, you know, so thinking in terms of like, what are our feasible options? What's going to happen if we win this argument? What, what's actually going to occur? And I'm not saying we should have the Fed in an ideal world. We should have a free market money. I still think that. Um, in fact, a free market money would be really awesome in lots of ways. Um, but again, given the question, we're not going to convince most people libertarianism is true. How do we live with them? That's what brought me to Bleeding Heart Libertarians. And that's also what brought me to read the book. But it doesn't mean that I think the libertarian theory of justice is, is false. It just means I have a different way of going about pushing for it.
is what I would say to your listeners. Yeah, there, there's so much to unpack there. And I think <laughs> and it's, it's awesome because this is usually my my job to, to like give the uh, the guests so much to unpack in one question. But you you ended up um, kind of in your your explaining of this this idea of trust right now my my day job yeah. I'm, a, I'm a sales professional I lead a sales team in telecom and and one of the things I'm always talking about is is you know obviously trying to build rapport over the phone but also trying to build trust and and yeah. building yeah. trust is one of the most fundamental key aspects in sales because if you are not able to establish some you know fundamental basis of trusting one another, then everything that you're doing is completely null and void because the underlying, really the the, the foundation, the the, the basement of the the entire relationship isn't built on anything positive and and, and lasting. So as I'm thinking about that, one of the things I've been hearing more and more, and I've actually been, I think it's, it's fair to say we've been seeing it more and more, is that as technology has advanced, it has helped incentivize kind of this wild west libertarian world just by the sheer nature that it's new and it hasn't been regulated yet and one of the the best examples i heard uh most recently was actually um the the head of the we are libertarians channel chris spangle he was over on kostaki economopolis who's a a very noted stand-up comedian um he was over on his show and chris used the example of the internet and and he said you know back when in the 90s when the internet really took off it was kind of the wild west and you got to see it created so much opportunity for innovation, for research and development, but also the whole blogosphere back exactly. when blogs were a thing. You know? Yeah, exactly. And that that right there kind of speaks to, well, sometimes the, the whatever the libertarian like solution or, you know, what we think the future will look like. We have no idea because the market is a sneaky little bugger and it will go ahead and make its own rules. You know what we think it's going to be be damned. And it ends up in some cases, I would say, making some of the original government responsibilities more archaic. Right. So let's I mean, very quickly, you can even look at something like the Postal Service. The Postal Service was essentially deemed completely null and void from a a service standpoint. If you're really being real with what it's supposed to do with the advent of email and the advent of email entirely from the Internet. So I hear that argument from some folks who are more in the well, listen, as we are making this, you know, progression away from government doing these services, if you will, to the market doing these services. I guess, let me ask you this. How would we help our friends more on the left? To to your point, they're kind of stuck in this mentality that this is, you know, this is the way that we need to live and, and rule society. But as we show them, like, if we look right now, there was a whole argument back a couple of months ago about the post office being funded, right? Yeah. And one of the arguments from a more free market perspective was, no, it's not necessary. So is there a way, I guess, that we can kind of take your your approach of building the trust, right, in some of these institutions that we can argue are done more from this, you know, this, again, bleeding heart mentality, but as the technology advances to, to say, hey, listen, this program it's no longer needed. We've got this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I have um, a discussion uh, in chapter five of the book where I talk about, you know, this is a philosopher's term, policy epistemology, which basically what are the, what are the standards that um, help us to um, convince each other that some policy is going to have some predicted effect? And um, there has to be some kind of public way Sorry, there, there has to be some kind of public way to convince people of different perspectives that policies have had certain effects. 
Otherwise, you know, we can't even have discourse about them because we don't even agree about the empirical facts. So what we need at the very least is some kind of cost benefit analysis test, right? Like how much money is it going to cost? How much money is it going to save? So on and so forth. Um, but if you look at what, say, the Congressional Budget Office says, is they say, well, we, we, we score things before they're passed, but then they change when they're passed. So it's actually really hard for us to know whether any policy has been scored correctly, um, which I think that many on the left would not want to hear that. But um, it's pretty much what they say. And what this means is that it's going to be really hard to predict the effects of any policy. And that many people, and the difficulty is if, if, if the policy leads, say, to more corruption, right, or the policy leads to some group imposing its values on a group that rejects those values, um, then we're going to be in a worse place even from a left-wing perspective. Now, the difficulty many people on the left say is they say, look, well, you've, you've biased this public reason view towards libertarianism because you're insisting that these policies meet certain standards of evidence. They would never put it that way because as soon as you put it that way, it's not, it doesn't sound unreasonably libertarian, right? It's just this, you know, look, I mean, now I do actually argue in chapter five that there are programs like Head Start, but really the one I think that has been uh, the gold standard for redistributive policy is Bolsa Familia in Brazil. It's a policy basically like the mothers get a small um, cash transfer from the government if they both get their kids vaccinated and send them to school. And it looks like it's reduced a lot of a, pov a lot of poverty in Brazil. And, you know, it isn't that much of an interference, you know, with people. It doesn't cost that a huge amount to fund. Um, the, the mothers aren't forced to bring their kids into the system. They make a choice. It's a cash transfer so they can do with the money that, what they want. And over 40 countries have rep replicated such programs. And there's been a lot of research and well done, ex you know, experimental trials on it. You know, I asked a friend of mine who worked for the World Bank for a while, you know, what was the gold standard of welfare policy? And he said, Bolsa Familia. And I thought, okay, I think that there's enough evidence for Bolsa Familia that libertarians can say, okay, people receiving a cash transfer in exchange for vaccination and kids getting their kids educated. Like, that's not the end of the world. You know what I mean? And many, you know, we can even, we can even say, according to libertarianism, it's not ideal. But these aren't the places to fight progressives. Right. Yeah. You know, this, well, right this, there. Can, can I can really know? quick address that? Because that's, I think, yeah. the, the, that's the elephant in the room, is that you yeah. have to meet people where they're at. And actually, I think it's, yes. I think it's Scott Horton who says, you know, argue the left from the left and argue the yeah. right from the right. And and yeah. you have to, if you're not able to make those kind of common agreements on on some fundamental principles, you know, that you can all agree. Yeah. And I, I, when I talk to my friends on the left, I'll always start out with, are monopolies bad? And they're like, yes. And I'm like, all righty yeah. then. So let's talk about school choice. Right. And like that right yeah. there, like it, it, if you can start to build upon these common agreements, yeah. now you're not gonna, <laughs> this is the best part that I think a lot of libertarians need to also realize that the best part of the whole conversation is that you're gonna see the moment they're like, damn it, they, they got me. But you can't call them on it. You have to stop. You got to lean yeah. back a little bit and you, you just got to let it marinate because that's yeah. going to be the time for them to really have some introspection and think about things. And to your point, if you're if you're completely bypassing that from the onset and you're just you're going in guns a blazing like, let's cut all welfare. And you're saying, that to, yeah. you know, the folks in the left, they're going to be like, hold up. Like that, you're a bad person. Ex exactly. You don't care about people. And then, and then you happen. can't enter any conversations in good faith. Yeah. Then they'll just, they'll just not believe what you say. I mean, most people ideologically hunker down 
the people that are easiest to convince are those who know enough to care, so probably over 15, but are not too old to have made up their minds, so under 25 or maybe even 21. Um, and that's, I think, when most people come to libertarianism or any systematic uh, political ideology. They may drift from there bits and pieces, but um, when you're trying to convince most people, you need to be able to show that the thing you support is consistent with the values that they hold and will probably hold for most of their lives. Right. And that's what I call a, a kind of public justification. That is, we can justify some law or policy to different perspectives. And if you can make the case to people, and I, I find that with progressives, as soon as I say, okay, no, um, you know, I, I do believe in, in some social welfare policies that I, I think are worthwhile, um, like Bolsa Familia, and then I explain it, and that immediately lowers the temperature of the conversation. So you start off with the thing where you, you know, maybe it's a concession, right? But then you say, but you know, the difficulty I have with progressives, I could say, is that when everyone gets in office, it seems like they start a war. Um, and, you know, I think we know from the Iraq war that that's not so so great. You know, Obama tears Libya apart. Um, Bush, I mean, um, um, Clinton, you know, tearing apart um, the Balkans. Um, so, you know, with, with uh, Lyndon Johnson and, and Vietnam. Um, so, you know, I mean, skipping Carter, but um, actually, on a liber from a libertarian perspective, Carter was half decent, right, relative to the others. Um, so, uh, but maybe we sh maybe they're all indecent. But in any of it, you know, so you say, look, I mean, this is a common value. We don't want to kill poor innocents in different countries. Um, and then, then you can start to reason. And then they, they usually say something along the lines of, well, you know, it's the better of the two options, right? And then you say, well, well wouldn't it be great if we had third parties? And then they would say... And they say, look, I don't agree with libertarians about very much. I say, well, that's fine. But like, what about a voting system where you could rank people's votes so that you could vote for a third party as your second or your third choice, right? I mean, many some countries have ranked choice voting. Others have parliamentary voting where, you know, the party that gets 30% of the vote gets 30% of the seats. Oh, yeah. Would you be up for that? Even if it meant libertarians have 15% of the house rather than what do we have? A mash and Massey. And, and Massey's not even a registered libertarian. Yeah, right. So so the thought would be, you say, look, I mean, and there probably would be a larger Green Party as well, because a lot of people on the left would defect. So I think oh, we'd have it, you know, there would also, I think, be a populist party. So maybe we'd end up with five, you know, um, but and only two of them would be major. Um, and But I, I find it pretty receptive to that. They say, you know, look, I, I can respect your opinion enough to think that if you're willing to have more of us around, we're willing to have more of you around. Um, but, um, it takes a, it takes a lot of work. And when libertarians just yell statist, it's not that different from progressives just hearing yelling racist. Yeah. No, it's you know, so it doesn't true. do any good. Yeah. It, it, you know, um, it's important to have those conversations. Oh, look, you know, I mean, there's, there's a, as you know, heck, I ran pointed out, there's a similarity between racism and, you know, and statism as forms of collectivism. And I think that, um, you know, but we have to be careful uh, about how we talk to people. And that's something libertarians have known for a long time. I mean, we've known they have to be careful about talking to people. But I'm thinking of something a little deeper and more principled, which is not just that's the only way you're going to convince them that you're correct, but rather that given they're probably not going to change their minds, this is how you actually come to live with people that aren't libertarian. That, right, yes. That's the point right there. We have and, to live with each other. Like At the end of the yes, day, they're not exactly. going away. Right. And so one of my arguments, and I say this in Appendix B of the, the book that, that's actually free online, um, that I, you know, most people, if you bring up the Amish, 
they're a little skeptical. But the Amish get a lot of exemptions for major policy, right? They get exemption from being required to go to public school, at least after eighth grade. They have exemption from Social Security. And so I, what I like to ask people is, you know, well, and they think this is a weird question, but I don't think it's that weird, which is that why can't libertarians have a special status like the Amish do? Why can't libertarians have a reservation as the Native Americans are supposed to have, right? Not what they actually have. Um, why can't we have some opportunity to try out our ideas? And, you know, y'all can see how we do, right? Just get, And a lot of, very, it's, it's actually seldom that people are just really opposed to that. I find if someone's really opposed to that, they're, they're, you scratch them a little bit more and they're, they're really pretty deeply authoritarian. I mean, if they're saying, if you say, look, we're not going to take over the country, just give us five square miles on a warm coast and we'll have, and just, just leave us be and let's see what we can figure out. And they can say, oh, that that's going to turn into a hellhole immediately. We'll say, we'll take that on. I mean, we'll take that risk. Right. But just, you know, let our people go. Right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, this is another thing that I kind of think about libertarians. I think it would be more useful if we thought of each other as a, as a people. You know, that it would help us to develop sort of social bonds and we could actually start to motivate more people to 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 cooperate, to actually bring about more libertarian policies. I mean, we're people with unusual values, but we have a deep commitment to getting along that's 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 special and that we don't always live up to, of course. Um, and it's libertarianism is not a religion, but it is a kind of ideology, not in the bad sense. Um, and um, there is a lot of bonding and common friendship within that group. Um, and so what I say is I say, look, you know, I'm not trying to make you live under a libertarian system. I'm just asking you to give us certain exemptions like people of faith get. You know, I'm a Christian. I believe very strongly in religious exemptions for, for all, you know, people of all different faiths, right? Well, why not ideological exemptions, right? Why not political exemptions for people that want to be, you know, held apart? And libertarians are unique because we have a very systematic view that's highly at variance where most people are, right? And so, you know, you, you can start off by saying, look, if you want to continue to have these policies, fine. Um, that's how you want to live together. And I want to live with you, but what would be wrong with a little more federalism? What would be wrong with a little more decentralization? And I think that's a lot of more effective. Now here, I think I actually, most of you are probably, you know, your, your listeners are probably at least somewhat sympathetic to that because we've all talked to people about libertarianism and we all know a little sense about what works and what doesn't. So that's the kind of uh, case that I try to make that, you know, I'm speaking to their values because I care about them because I respect them. Um, and then trying to make a case for libertarianism in a way that isn't as threatening to them as I think the sort of standard uh, uh, fare that, that, that at least we used to hear more about when Trump hadn't swamped all libertarian discussion. Should I have a friend of mine who says that Trump turned everybody against each, their own group, you know, turned libertarians against libertarians, conservatives against liber conservatives, and, you know, liberals against liberals. Um, and, you know, there's all these internal conflicts on the left now about like open society or not, you know, same thing with the conflicts between populists and traditional conservatives on the right. And then there's the libertarians who are kind of with Rand Paul and they say, look, at least Trump isn't for war and you know, we've got it. He sucks in a lot of ways, but we've kind of got to throw in with him. He's going to give us, you know, good justices that will help us limit government. You know, that's like way better than what we usually get from Republicans. He's way better than George W. Bush. He hasn't killed hundreds of thousands of people. Like, yes, he's, you know, authoritarian. Yes, he's bigoted in various ways. But like, broadly speaking, he's 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 less of a killer. Objective good know? is objective good. Yeah.
Yeah, yeah, and it's you know, but then the folks on the left say, "Look, he's tearing down the rule of law. He's dividing people. He's causing you know polarization. Um, he's eroding norms. Democracy may not be the very best system, but it's the best we've been able to achieve." And he's undermining that. Um, and so I feel like we've just been we've just been torn apart. Um, and libertarians, I, the popular libertarians, I think, are also torn. Like Justin Amash hates Trump, right? Rand Paul really likes Trump. But I like Justin Amash, and I like Rand Paul. Um, and I kind of wonder whether Rand hasn't kept Trump from actually do, you know, intervening yes, a bit more. Absolutely. I actually think it's plausible yep. that he's had something of an effect. Yes. Um, whereas, you know, but but I think I think Justin Amash, I mean, I was if he if he was actually gonna run, I was gonna beat down doors for him. I mean, and uh, you know, um, but um, because he's, you know, like me, a pro-life libertarian, and I, I also have a number of other ridiculous things in common with him. Not that that matters, but, you know, but libertarians have taken different postures, right? And that's, I think, made us focus on more on what divides us and what unites us. That was the great thing about Ron Paul in 2008 and 2012, at least yes. before the newsletter thing became an issue, was that it was bringing us all together. Um, and we did think that maybe the Republican Party would be a good vehicle for our ideas. And you know what? I mean, I'll say this. I actually think that um, some of Trump's hostility to war isn't native to him. I think he picked a lot of it up. Remember he ran against Pat Buchanan for the Reform Party presidential ticket in 2000? I think he ended up taking on a lot of Buchanan's views. So I don't think he got it from libertarianism. But there was this kind of milieu that was not always great and sometimes bad, uh, quite bad, but of uh, a discussion among conservatives and libertarians, uh, paleoconservatives and libertarians about being anti-war. And sometimes I wonder if through some kind of chain of influence, how, you know, we have this president who's done, you know, some pretty bad things abroad, but but not nothing like Obama, you know, nothing like W, certainly, right? Um, nothing like Clinton. I mean, so, you know, maybe we do have some kind of effect, but then, you know, we get these immigration restrictions. And I know some libertarians, a few are on board with that. I just think that's a mistake. I also know most libertarians are pro-choice, so maybe they think I'm mistaken for being pro-life. Um, but the broader point is just that right now libertarians are so divided that it's hard for us to accomplish anything with one shining, well, two shining exceptions. We're winning on marijuana and we're winning on school choice. So, and, and school choice, I'm convinced is going to matter more than all of it, right? Because kids are going to grow up with lots of different ideas. They're not going to be as homogenized. Also have read some stuff on some, there's some evidence now that a lot of secularization occurs because of public schooling, because it takes you away from uh, uh, encountering diverse and uh, different and religious values that you might have, because you're just stuck in a public school all day, right? Like yeah. you're just focused on whatever the other kids are and whatever the teacher forces you to do. Um, and I also think, and I know many libertarians disagree with me on this, but the new atheism has faded a lot. And, you know, Ayn Rand was a new atheist before it was cool. Um is that actually because religious people have other loyalties, um, they're not always, you know, they're not always collectivist and trying to control people, right? I mean, in our personal life, Ayn Rand was a lot more controlling than almost every religious person I know. Um, and I think that, um, you know, libertarians know, and many don't like this, but that this was something that Rothbard understood. He just didn't take it always or usually in the right direction. There had to be an alliance with people of faith. And if the country becomes more religious, 
um, I uh, or you know stops stops its decline. I think fewer people will be reaching out to you know ideological Trumpism, but also this sort of ideological social justice attitude. Um, so I think you know school choice is going to open up a lot of doors for us. Yeah, no, I agree. Corey DeAngelis over at the Reason Foundation has been doing amazing work. And I mean, like Trump's retweeting him. That's a big deal. Like that cannot be understated that the president of the United States is retweeting a libertarian think tank's entire pro school choice uh, public policy approach. Like, okay, like I I see why folks like Austin Peterson are voting for Trump. I I understand the appeal because there there definitely are some pro libertarian sentiments i mean goodness the criminal justice um reform bill that trump passed it's for the first ep- i mean that's a big deal and like that's an objective thing that yeah. not only libertarians but like i think by and large yeah. just people across the yeah. nation can say like that's a good thing and like and and that there's a reason that biden's walking away from the 94 crime bill because it's been objectively looked at as a negative and like that's yeah. okay. We need to embrace that. That's like that's the reality, and we can agree with people on the left. And I, I don't understand this. This again, it goes to this kind of collective appeal. It seems like we have to be the left versus the right. And I'm guilty of it myself. I, I've gone on and said, you know, the left. And I usually use it for talking about people who don't have a conversation more so than just like the generic left. But like there are some folks on the hardcore left who they will not have conversations, and they do label everybody that's you know right of marks as as racist and it's hard to have conversations with folks like that but to the contrary you have you know you're you're you know super super you know racist nazi um you know what i'm gonna say proud boy because i want to you know lump them in because i know that they're not the, the same but like you'll have these these far right ideological groups that will they'll do the exact same thing that antifa does right they'll, they'll get into yeah. their little you know their little collective hive and that that group think it's very toxic it's very dangerous um yeah, it's a they also group think is bad among libertarians it's bad oh, for, everybody. for sure no it's it's terrible yeah. and like that's one thing i think we as libertarians also need to do is lead by example get out of our online think tanks of group chats and stuff and yeah and we gotta be more than argument bots yes get to talk to real people and also get offline get get like i I have a really good friend and and like bless his soul he lives at home with his parents like he plays video games all day long and like his entire worldview is through the confines of his computer screen and like he thinks the world is a terrible place and i'm like my man it, it of course when you surround yourself online with people who think the exact same way as you and you only look for things that reaffirm that worldview that you're going to have a yeah. negative view. And then, and then the, the, be- I said the best part, the worst part is that they don't, they don't have a job. They don't, you know, they don't go out and see the real world. And like yeah. that, that it's very damaging to a, a, you know, your psychological self, because if you're, and this goes even more to like, we want, you know, this would open up another can of worms, but like the, the damaging impacts of the lockdowns, I would say from a top down perspective, like putting people in these bubbles where your entire interaction with the outside world is through screens. I just don't think it's healthy. Um, and I don't think it's necessarily real. I don't think like it will have some negative, it will have some costs, big ones, but I I'm, 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 I'm in a place on all of this of deep agnosticism my uh when my advisor jerry gas who i mentioned he he i'm talking about him so much because he he died two months ago um and he was finishing up a book um that's going to come out called the open society and its complexities and um um one of the the um things that he stresses and this is a theme in hayek's later work is just that economic systems and political systems are complex and not just complicated, meaning that they have lots of different moving parts that have causal feedback loops with one another. 
And so that makes it very, very hard to predict outcomes. And this is something Jerry was talking about with COVID, you know, in, in some of his public talks was that our inability to predict outcomes with the models has, has been really embarrassingly bad. So early on, I was like, okay, like, you know, 14 days to stop the spread or whatever. But like, even now, like the libertarians that are so anti-lockdown, I feel like they're having, it's like the same thing. It's like, everyone feels more certain about what to do than I do. Like, I feel like I'm like, I feel like people want me to have like people I know like, Oh, you're a political philosopher. What do you think? And I'm like, look, I don't know what the best policy is right now. I, I just don't know. I keep hoping they'll come up with a vaccine. I'm going to get it early. I know that I want to contribute to the public good with a voluntary action. And that's a very good way to do it. Um, but um, all the, 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 the anti-lockdown libertarians, um, but also, I do think there's, you know, early on, a lot of the pro it was the pro libertarians that were pro lockdown were louder. You know what I mean? But now it's the anti lockdown libertarians. Um, um, and, and candidly, by the way, I I'm yeah. I am a thousand percent anti lockdown libertarian. Like I I have been from the start. I had Dan Mitchell on my show back in in uh -huh, March, uh -huh. and like we were yeah. talking about the economic consequences of of the COVID nineteen lockdowns from an economic st uh, standpoint then. And um, actually, yeah. I, I was just saying I had a uh, Jeffrey Tucker from AIR, which yeah, just oh, plays. Yeah. He's been all over, and I he just, sure has. I, I used to agree with Jeff about many things, but but I've come to disagree with him in his degree of certitude about about the badness of these now now what i think is going to happen what i would what i would support is I, I i don't think we need lockdowns and in fact i think there's good evidence to suggest that um it's actually the the lockdowns temporary lockdowns actually aren't the worst thing for the economy the worst thing for the economy is people are afraid to exchange with each other that's been the, the biggest hit so i don't i i don't know if lo lockdowns aren't the source of the greatest economic cost the the 80, 90% of that, I think, is just people are afraid to exchange. And so what we need as soon as possible, and this is you know where I'm with Tyler Count and Alex Tabarrok, because they've been banging the drum on this, is um, to, uh, if another country comes up with a vaccine and they're a decent country with good health professionals like the UK, why should we wait for our own FDA? If the UK FDA says it's good enough, you know, well, there's a call something different, then why why shouldn't we have the freedom to try it? So Alex has been on the you know reimportation of drugs. Like why can't we reimport drugs from Canada and the and and England and Sweden and stuff? Do you think that they just make stupid decisions? But actually, our FDA is actually really regressive. It's way too risk averse and controlling. Um, and so you know my view is you know I I I say I I kind of I try to respect expert opinion, but they were so badly wrong, and particularly when. The hypocrisy that came up with, oh, people can protest and that's fine, but they can't go to church. Yeah, so for me yes. as a person of faith who like can't, like couldn't go to church, but once a month, you know, who had to not receive the sacraments because I didn't want to get people sick. But then all these other people can pursue what their highest value is. Right. But I can't. So my little church can't get together. Um, I can't. I sing uh, in church, too. I can't oh, sing. Yeah. Very well. I, we have to all be in the front pew, but we finally got permission to be back up in the choir loft. And it's just the amount of consolation and joy that comes from that's overwhelming. So as soon as that, you know, the main people wouldn't say, oh, well, you shouldn't be protesting. I was like, I think I'm done listening to you. And that doesn't mean I'm going to go hardcore in the other direction. It just means I don't know. You know, and I, 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 um, I really wish that our the leading medical professionals um, had the courage to say that the protests were a risk and that people should reconsider, but they lacked it. And that made me trust them less because oh. they had less 
because they had less courage. You said it. Trust. Yeah. And that's exact full yeah. circle. Trust yeah. in a polarized age. I mean, my yeah. goodness, how about that for a nice bow on top of the episode? Because that's, yeah. <laughs> that's exactly what it comes down to. Trust is missing. Right. And we need yeah. to reestablish some form of trust in politics, especially, yes, in this polarized age. The book is available November 10th. And between now and then, Kevin Vallier, where can folks go ahead and follow you to stay up to date with all that's happening in, in your world? And uh, when folks want to go ahead and buy the book, where can they go ahead and find mm -hmm. it? Well, um, friend me on Facebook. It's just just find me at Kevin Val Kevin Valier. Uh, you know, um, the name will be in the show, but it's V as in Victor, A L L I E R, as I like to say. Um, uh, uh, but um, there's my website, kevinvalier.com, that you can go to, um, which has the book page and links to the book and links to discounts on the book, so you can get my book for twenty five bucks. It, I, I spent a lot of time on the data on trust, but I, I, there's a lot of things that I think uh, are cool about the relationship between how markets build trust and how trust builds markets um, that I think a lot of your listeners will find uh, of interest. So yeah, check out uh, me on Facebook. I'm at Valier on uh, Twitter. You can follow me there. And then, of course, there's my website. So you can find me any of those places. Fantastic. And I'll make sure I include all those links in the show notes. Kevin Valier, thanks for another Brian Nichols show. Yeah, thank you. A quick read from our new sponsor, and that is the Expat Money Show. Now, if you are a longtime listener or even a relatively new listener here on The Brian Nichols Show, then you remember our good friend, Mikkel Thorup from the Expat Money Show. What an episode. To learn that just because you were born in one country doesn't mean that you have to pay your taxes there forever to do your banking there or to have your investments there, raise your family there, or even have your companies register there, learn there, get your kids educated there, or even live your life there. How about that? You can go ahead and live your life wherever it is you see fit, because the Expat Money Show, which is hosted by our friend Mikhail Thorup, originally started as a podcast, but has grown to a worldwide community of entrepreneurs who are living international location independent lifestyles. Mikkel is focused on helping you live an international life by looking at problems through the lens of global solutions. In this day and age, there is no reason you should let borders get in the way of having the best the world has to offer. So, Brian Nichols Show audience, head over to the Expat Money Show today. Give Mikkel a subscribe, a fantastic show, and tell him that Brian Nichols sent you. Alrighty, folks, that's going to wrap up my conversation with Professor Kevin Vallier here on The Brian Nichols Show. Brand new book, Trust in a Polarized Age. I will include the link to that amazing book, amazing read here in the show notes. So make sure you go ahead, give it a click, give it a purchase, and make sure you tell Kevin that Brian Nichols sent you his way. Now, some housekeeping. If you guys have not yet had the chance to look at our amazing, amazing episodes we had here this week on The Brian Nichols Show, then look no further back. On Wednesday, we had good friend Kevin, Dr or Kevin, goodness gracious, Kevin Valley is on today's show. Connor Dragotis, that's right, Connor, returns to The Brian Nichols Show to discuss his brand new book, and that is one of How to Work for Liberty. Back on Monday, we had Max Golker. Economists return to the show to discuss how Joe Biden's economic prospects will, in fact, 
impact our economy. A fantastic conversation there with our good friend Max. And looking ahead to next week. Okay, strap in because we have a star-studded lineup once again. On Monday, new LP chair candidate Angela McArdle. She joins the show. Also on Wednesday, Hannah Cox. That's right, Hannah Cox from uh, Conservatives Concerned Against the Death Penalty. She joins the show, but she is not joining the show to discuss that, but more so discuss her new ventures, uh, including uh, some of her work over at Fee, um, but also her brand new podcast. Um, so Hannah joins the show and also discuss, obviously, some of the uh, happenings in the past uh, few months, but also going forward to Friday, Larry Sharp. Good old Larry returns to the show. Good old Larry. That's right. Uh, gubernatorial candidate in New York in 2018 as a libertarian and a host of the Sharp Way. Larry makes his pitch of how we need to get better libertarian candidates and libertarian activists as we head to the 2020 midterms. I'm sorry, 2022 midterms and 2024 POTUS election. I know it's never too early, folks. And actually, that's one fun thing you're going to see about the uh, the shows this past uh, or this coming week. Rather, we, we all give our little pr- predictions. Who could be the LP candidate in 2024? Should it be an activist, a celebrity, elected official or somebody you didn't think about? Make sure you, you tune into every single episode because we dig into all the possibilities out there. So you don't want to miss it. So with that being said, guys, you know the, the rules, right? at B Nichols Liberty, Twitter, Facebook, Minds.com, but yes, Parlor.com. I am doing a lot more over on Parlor because the writing's on the wall. Twitter, Facebook, they are going to be taking down libertarian conservative pages over the next few years. It's been happening over the past few years. Remzo Martinez uh, joined the show back in 2018 to discuss how, yes, censorship online can happen to anyone, including you. And Remzo made his pitch. And now Remzo is working over at Parler, bringing more people onto that network as, yes, a true alternative. And by the way, I am going to finish uh, this little rant about Parler. If you're a libertarian and you've been saying, well, you don't like getting kicked off Facebook or Twitter, we'll make your own platform, dude. Well, guess what? Parler made their own platform. If you are going out of your way and saying, oh, look at these, these libertarians, conservatives going to their echo chamber. F you. I'm sorry. You know what? If you want to actually like have libertarian solutions to problems we see in the market, well, guess what? You need to be out there supporting these other alternatives because at the end of the day, what happens when you're the one that's targeted, right? Then you'll be begging. You'll be begging folks like Remzo to it to, hey, help me get my, my account transitioned over to Parler. So I'm going to say this right now. If you have not had the chance yet to go ahead and check out Parler, I strongly, strongly encourage you to do so. But please, Leave all preconceived notions at the door. And if you actually want to learn uh, the, the benefits of going to a truly open, open, uh, free speech platform where basically you you are allowed to be your own person so long as you're not breaking the law. Like, come on. Isn't that kind of the way it should be? I don't know. I'm enjoying Parler, so I, I cannot encourage you guys enough. Follow me at B Nichols Liberty on there. All right. Five-star rating and review. Have you done it yet? Apple Podcasts. If not, head over there, Apple Podcasts. Give us that five-star rating and review. Number one, it helps people find the show. But number two, you'll be entered into our awesome Ebels giveaway. Yes, Ebels, a fantastic sponsor, CBD sponsor here on The Brian Nichols Show. Uh, I use their their Ebels uh, topical um, cream. It, seriously, like for my shoulder, especially, I, I tore my labrum in my left shoulder a few years back. Um, and and I'll, I'll notice every now and then I'll get like this twinge toss some of that evils on oh my gosh it, it, it's like a it's like a, it didn't even happen well isn't that a commercial like it didn't even happen i don't know it's something like that serve pro it's someone i don't know it's friday so guys uh, as we head into the weekend you know the rules make sure you do that that enter uh, into the uh, the apple uh, podcast giveaway for evils you know, that five star rating and review that's all i really have for you guys we had a lot of great fun here this uh, this past week in the brian nichols show a lot more fun to be had as we go into next week so with that being said it's it's brian nichols signing off here on the brian nichols show for 
our professor, Kevin Vallier. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to The Brian Nichols Show. Find more episodes at briannicholsshow.com.